Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2. If you're our guest today, I also want to greet you. My name is Jim, and I have uh, the joy of, of pastoring here at Calvary Baptist Church, and I sure hope I get to shake your hand if you're our guest today. After the service, I'll be in the lobby, uh, and uh, I would enjoy meeting you. By the way, there's a, there's a great glow of, of cuteness in the building. Um, where's, where's Michael? And Maddie, it's good to have you back, but is, is that Piper Joy with you? Well, welcome. That explains the glory of cute going on here. So I welcome, I welcome Piper Joy Serenko to her first church service here, uh, Sunday service, and it's great to have you back too, Maddie, and we've been praying for you guys, and it's been great to watch the Lord's blessings on, in your life and family. Well, Galatians chapter 2, in just a moment, I'll draw your attention to several verses here. But to launch our, our thought this morning and our study, our final biographical study of Peter, um, I came across a story a few years back, and I share it from time to time. I know I've shared it on a Wednesday night here before. But many years ago, the communist government in China commissioned an author to write a biography of the American missionary Hudson Taylor. And the goal of writing this biography was supposed to be the purpose of distorting the narrative, distorting the facts and the motives of Hudson Taylor, putting him into a very bad light to undercut all the the benefit and blessing that was associated with him and surely to silence the, the spread of the gospel. That was the goal. The goal was to discredit his name and the name of Jesus. Well, this writer that was commissioned by the Communist Party went to work researching the life of Hudson Taylor. And one reporter summarizes the end result here. They write, As this author was doing his research to discredit Hudson Taylor, the author himself was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character and godly life, and he found it extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his own life, this author laid aside his pen, renounced his atheism, and received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, just based on the testimony of Hudson Taylor years after he lived. It's true, isn't it? I hear a story like that. You hear a story like that. It's, it's hard and it's even impossible to wipe out the footprint of influential people. You can try, but you just can't. Even after they're off the scene, if you will. Just think of Martin Luther, the reformer. Think of Jonathan Edwards, the great theological mind. Think of Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher. Think of Ronald Reagan, just one president. I could tell you stories about uh, um, Navy SEALs who were serious disciples of Jesus, who made it to the top 
uh, platform of, of DevGrew or SEAL Team 6 with a strong testimony of Christ in place. And even though one particular one named Adam Brown was killed in action in 2010, his influence continues to, to ring out through the SEAL teams. I think of a pastor in my life, Pastor Vanneman. I think of my own dad. And by the way, you could probably fill in the blank, right? There are people from history whose influence continues this day in your life. I love what missionary Jim Elliott once wrote in his journal. He said this. He wrote these words. Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let them not be or let me not just merely be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that people must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. End quote. People put down deep footprints. And you know, one of those men in our lives as a church family is the Apostle Peter. Even though he's off the scene, his life has been up close and personal in front of us these past few weeks and months as we've gone through a biographical study from the Gospels on his life. I would say that there's a lot we didn't cover, but what we did cover makes him very familiar to us. And what we found most familiar about Peter is that we not only know a lot about him, but he looks a lot like us. We've studied a man who came from very rough material, big time, very thick leather, if you will. We've studied a man together who who needed definitely to learn humility over and over again. We've studied a man who enjoyed a place of privilege, there's no doubt about that, to be handpicked by the Messiah to be a disciple, to be named an apostle, to be handed the keys that will be used, the gospel keys to unlock the Jewish minds on the day of Pentecost and the Gentiles at the household of Cornelius. A place of great privilege. He himself even saw Jesus transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration and he himself got to see Elijah and Moses. We've studied a man who developed an appetite for solid doctrine. We've studied a man who crawled and walked and ran and then fell. Rinse and repeat. We've studied a man together who battled legalism and had to relearn grace. So we've studied Peter, but really I think we've been studying our own hearts. We know Peter now. He's familiar. And his footprint has gone down deep in our church family and in our individual lives. And so there's a principle here I just want to challenge you with at the beginning of this sermon. And the principle is this. The creation of footprints will cease. When does that happen? When death happens. The the fresh footprints being pressed down out of a life may cease at death, but the depth of those footprints will continue even after death as others are influenced. 
So I wonder, have you given this any thought for you? What kind of footprints are you leaving? Are you being intentional? How do you leave a significant mark in the lives of those within your reach week after week? I'm talking about your home. I'm talking about your work. I'm talking about your church. I'm talking about your campus. Are you being intentional in thinking through, how can I put down footprints as a disciple of Jesus that will outlive me and outreach me? Have you given this any thought? Because our study today should help us all along these lines. Our study today, our final biographical study on Peter's life, will offer us some quiet yet crystal clear planning tips on how to leave your mark. I want to pass over Peter's life one more time over several decades of his life. And I want you to see this morning four ways to leave your mark. Four ways to leave your mark. First of all, number one. This one's simple. You ready? Never quit. You say, well, that's, uh, that seems like a light point. That seems cliche-ish. Hear me out. As we look at Peter's life, you will learn this lesson in grace. Never quit. You see, we bump into a time of silence as we go through the data we have in the New Testament, in the Gospels, of course, and in the Epistles. We hit a season of silence in Peter's life. You say, well, when did this start? It started around a year, probably 49 A.D., A.D. 49. Your Bible is open to Galatians chapter 2. And I'd like for you to follow along as I read verses 11 through 14. Paul's writing, and he's going to refer to Peter's name Cephas. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James in Jerusalem, Cephas used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. There were some who were professing faith in Christ, a large number, in Jerusalem, under the watch of the apostolic church there, and they were not distancing themselves fully from the Mosaic law. And they were making statements that you had to become circumcised, a male had to become circumcised to make sure he was saved. And that will be the undertone of this entire epistle, the question of the Mosaic law in general, and circumcision in particular. Now they were wrong. But they showed up in Antioch, and Peter stood aloof because he feared them. 
And it would be enough if it was just Peter, but keep reading in verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I spoke to the ringleader who should have known better. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, you're, you were fine until these guys showed up and, 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 and you've been preaching the gospel of grace, but why are you getting caught up in this? You teaming up with these Judaizers makes it look like salvation is not by faith. This is a public rebuke of Peter by another titan, Paul, if you will, in front of the Gentiles and in front of the Jews and the Judaizers. I mean, this was huge. Yeah, it's huge. As a matter of fact, after Galatians 2 and the timeline of the New Testament, we don't hear from Peter again for a long time. It goes silent. It's, 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 it's interesting to study which came first, the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15, where Peter was a major spokesman, on these matters that he's being rebuked over now, did that come first or did this confrontation come first? That Paul writes about to the Galatian believers of what happened in Antioch. And it's just quite humorous, actually, to watch the commentaries fight over this. I mean, they all have their, their, their arguments as to which came first. And what makes it difficult to be dogmatic for some people is that these both happened in the year A.D. 49. That we can be sure of. But the two events can be separated by weeks or perhaps months. I happen to fall into the, the category that this confrontation happened after the Jerusalem Council. I'm not 100% clear on that, but I lean that direction. But we can be certain of this. This confrontation in Galatians chapter 2 happened in A.D. 49, and we don't hear anything from Peter for close to 15 years. We know that he was martyred in, in the year 66, and working backward with the data we have, we can date the writing of 1 Peter pretty accurately to right around the year 64, perhaps 65. But by that point, he only has two years to live, so First and Second Peter come out within a year, perhaps a year and a half of each other. But there's silence. From 49 to around 64, what's going on here? Did Peter quit? Put yourself in his position. You, a known and recognized leader in what Jesus is doing, he's, he's birthed his church and he's growing it through your preaching. 
And yet Galatia, or Antioch happens to you. There's a bunch of reasons why people like you and me would have quit. And that would have explained the 15 years of silence. First of all, there's the issue of public embarrassment. Wow. It's like you have Paul and Peter here, and Paul delivered a knockout in the first round in front of everyone. Public embarrassment's enough to send us packing. Or it could have been Peter realizing that, you know what, Paul's got a point. I've just practically denied the grace of the gospel with my hypocrisy in front of Jew and Gentile alike. And this is especially weighty if indeed the Antioch confrontation happened after the Jerusalem council. And this is the same Peter that was used. He used those keys to unlock the, the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with the Cornelius household. Yet now he's denying it practically, the gospel of grace. That'd be enough to get someone to quit. Another reason that people like Peter and us may have quit and gone missing is because of the fear of man, focused at not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. We might be tempted to quit because of collateral carnage. It's not just enough that Peter bit the dust here in Antioch, but he brought along with him not just the other Jews, but another titan of the early church, of all people, Barnabas, following Peter again. No wonder some people quit. It may, it may have been reason to quit uh, because, you know, if people were, were already starting to compare Peter and Paul, as we would later read about in Corinth, well, what's this going to do for his stock, for Peter's stock? Peter and people like us might have quit because, my goodness, the last few chapters of restoration, whenever I've bit the dust, have been very humbling. And I have to go through that again now. Maybe Peter and us would quit because of a loss of influence or just flat-out discouragement. It is interesting here, when you compare it to other times that he flopped in the Gospels, this is the first time... We don't read of Peter fighting for the last word. He knows he's wrong. That's enough to make any of us vanish, right? I mean, that's enough to make any of us stay gone or to give up or to fade into the shadows of mediocrity or to retire enough. For 15 years, Peter vanishes from Acts and the New Testament until his pen explodes with his two epistles. Written right around 64, perhaps 65. And you know what we find as we get these two epistles that break the silence of a decade and a half we find that Peter is definitely alive, Peter is definitely strong, and Peter is still leading, he's still learning, he's still discipling, and Peter this whole time has continued to prepare an army of scattered believers to suffer and to fight false doctrine. You say, well, what does that sound like? 
Look over at 1 Peter with me. You want to hear the words that he breaks the silence with in our Bibles? Doesn't sound like someone that's just been sitting around moping. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. With these nouns and verbs, the 15 years of silence closes. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is, in, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you didn't see him now, you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We better just stop reading there. We'll read the whole chapter. This is not what comes out of a man who's been moping. This is not what comes out of the heart of an individual who has quit. Oh no, he's, he's alive. And he's well. And he's, in this first epistle, he's been putting his thought and his theology to work of how can I get these scattered believers ready to suffer the way they're going to have to suffer for the gospel. You say, oh, so he's a softie, just saying you got to be doormats. No, 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 no. He's going to tell them how to be mighty in their suffering. There's no doormats from Peter. That part has never changed with him. As a matter of fact, when he continues on into 2 Peter, he is rousing an army that will stand against the false teaching that's coming. Peter, quiet these 15 years, has continued to grow and mature. He's continued to treasure grace extended to him. He's continued to study the scriptures and to teach the scriptures. What does that mean? It means he didn't quit. Does he have disappointing failures in his life? Yes. Has he said things he'd love to take back? Absolutely. Did he miss ministry opportunities with Jew and Gentile alike? Yes. But that's what he discovered about grace. He discovered it even in the Gospels as he was walking and bumping into Jesus on the road. And it's this, this grace that comes from Jesus not only rescues us one time, it continues to follow us and rescue us our whole lives. 
Never quit. Whether you're in the spotlight or not, whether it's the daytime or nighttime of your narrative, never quit. Proverbs 24 verse 10 says, if you're slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Never quit. One of the Christian artists back when I was a teenager in the 80s wrote these words, and I've been singing them all morning. And the words go like this, you may stumble and you may fall, but keep on believing if you can still crawl. Don't quit. Don't ever quit. Never believe for a moment, brothers and sisters, that time out of the spotlight means out of commission. If you've had personal failure, there can be restoration. If you've made mistakes as a parent or as a teenager, if you've struggled with a mediocre marriage on a good day, if you seem to always get the assignment of the unseen ministries, if you find yourself lost in monotonous work and employment, you might not be seen but it doesn't mean you're dead and done. Dr. Dan Davey, as he goes to the different colleges to promote Virginia Beach Theological Seminary, I've heard him say it a thousand times, or maybe a hundred times. He would tell people, as he said, would come to seminary from your college, he would say to them, now for about three to five years, you're going to disappear from view as you learn your Greek, as you learn your Hebrew, as you learn your church history, as you learn your pastoral theology, as you learn counseling, as you learn all of that, it's going to take the breath away from you for about three to five years. It's like you're going underwater. But what comes up out of the water after those years of silence, if you will, will be someone who's strong and ready for the task. Don't quit. Don't ever quit. Peter was quietly doing something else, though, between Galatians and 1 Peter, between Antioch confrontation and 1 Peter. He was busy. And this leads to the second way to leave your mark. Number two, invest in rescues. Invest in rescues. Now, do you know what I mean when I say rescue, a rescue? Are you with me on that? These are people who get failed. They get failed by others or they fail themselves out of discouragement. They hear the, those awful words from the show The Apprentice and Donald Trump. You're fired. And they hear it from other people in their lives or if no one else is going to fire them, they're happy to fire themselves and withdraw. This can happen in ministry. This can happen in your career. It can happen in your marriage. Of course, your parenting. Where you or someone else fires you. You're the rescue. I'm going to give you a little counseling tip here. Rescues recognize 
rescues. Someone who's had to be rescued, maybe many times, will be the first one to recognize someone else who needs rescued and they haven't been rescued yet. I see that in, for, I'll give you a little story problem for that. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read it to you. Ephesians 4 verse 28. This is where Paul identifies someone who might be in sin and tells them how to come out of that sin as a Christian. And I find it very interesting what he does. He's going to look at someone who struggles with stealing. And he's going to say, not only do you as a thief need to be rescued, but you need to become the rescue for other potential thieves. Ephesians 4, 28. Paul says it this way. He who steals must steal no longer. But he doesn't stop there. He's like, okay, if you take things that don't belong to you, you need to like stop that. He says, but rather he's, he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Say, what's he saying here? He's saying this. Okay. He just told them in verses 22 to 24, you need to put off the old man thieves. You need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds with scripture. And you need to put on the new man. What does that look like? Case study number one, thieves. He says, all right, first of all, put off the old man. Stop stealing. And it's also interesting here that... Uh, um, of course, we read Paul here as if, as a part of Scripture, and uh, of course um, has the weight of God's mind and God's word and what He says. So we're hearing today Paul and God through Paul saying, "Put off stealing, stop it." And then we're hearing. Well, what do I do then? That's the renewing of the mind, and He tells us what to do. He says, "You need to go get a job." And you need to earn enough so that you not only supply for your needs, but you have sufficient needs to give to other brothers or sisters who are in need, listen, who would be tempted to steal like you used to steal. You'll recognize them because you've been there. You've been a thief. You recognize potential thieves, so help them not be that by giving to them in their need so that they don't steal. It's a little, just a little counseling principle. Rescues recognize rescues. You show me someone who has been rescued by, by Christ all over again, not in the sense of salvation, but in the sense of straying and being brought back, straying and being brought back. And I'll show you someone who will take that same grace that they've experienced, the 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 grace, that comforted them, and they'll use that same grace to comfort others who are struggling in ministry or career or marriage or parenting. So now that we have the definition of rescue down, do you know any? Do you know any that need to be rescued? They've gone astray like you have before. They've struggled like you've struggled before then I introduce you to your rescue project. And as you put this footprint down, you got to remember a few realities about rescue. First of all, understand it's going to take some time. It's going to take time to rescue. It's going to take time, and, and you're going to be needing to pull your chair up into someone's life and leave it there as long as necessary. 
Paul said in Colossians 1:28 and 29, we proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom that we may present each one complete in Christ. That takes time. Rescues take time. But secondly, close contact with your rescue project is your new norm. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, whatever, whichever of those three your rescue is, the last phrase of that verse is instructive. It says, and be patient with all. It's not one and done with a rescue. Your goal is to keep them in the game, either crawling or walking, eventually running, if necessary for starting out, sitting. But stay with them and get them moving. Build the hope up in their hearts of rescue with Scripture and get them moving even at the slowest of paces. Jim Berg used to always tell us, you, gotta, you can't steer a parked car. It's got to be moving. You need to understand something else about your rescue. Your rescue project has envisioned numerous times what life, what ministry, what family, even what marriage would look like without them. They're likely in a low, low place. And because of their failure, they now understand that their marriage and their career and their ministry is bigger than just them. It's all right here with your rescue. You see, that sounds like a lot of work. It is. It sounds like you get your hands dirty. You will. But I'll also tell you one other thing in your ministry to rescues. You will be the first one to see them fly again. You'll be the first one to see them animated with the life of the gospel one more time. And so many times your rescue will reach far beyond your years. This is the type of rescue that Peter invested in. You want to know who his rescue was? A young man named John Mark. John Mark has a very interesting story in the New Testament. I want to show it to you. Go back with me to the first missionary journey launching out in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Prior to the first missionary, we, we, we meet him here. It says in Barnabas, in verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. We met Mark, or John Mark in this chapter earlier in verse 12. Remember when Peter was released by an angel and went to the prayer meeting? Where was the prayer meeting being held? We'll look at Acts 12, verse 12. He went to the house, he, Peter, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. John Mark is someone that Paul and Barnabas said, this, this young man has promise. We could use his energy. We could use his help. 
with what's coming up. See, what was coming up? Well, in Acts chapter 13, we have the first missionary journey sailing out, if you will, from Antioch. And who's with them? Who's with them? Look at verse 5. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. I mean, this young man is beginning his gospel resume at a, at a, at a young age. I mean, he's, he's traveling with Paul and Barnabas and sent out by Antioch. Wow. He didn't last long. Because a little persecution later, and he himself wasn't the one really persecuted. It was Paul and a few of the leaders. What happens? Well, look at Acts chapter 13, verse 13. We didn't get real far, did we? Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. Look at this. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You have a little conflict, a little resistance, and Paul had to confront the demonic and and that was all John Mark could handle. He's like, I'm going home. I call that ministry failure. You say, well, was it a quick turnaround for John Mark? No. Because after the, the um, council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, look what happens in verse 36 of Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is the beginning of the second missionary journey. And Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had, and if there was any question about Acts 13.13, 13, it wasn't just that he got a stomachache, he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Wow. That's kind of intense. Paul didn't take quitting easy. Then what happened? Well, it's here that we have to use the different texts of Scripture to put something together here. Where did John Mark go when he quit? Jerusalem. Who was in Jerusalem? Come to find out, Peter. You say, what happened? I don't know, but something happened. Something big happened. And don't forget, Peter knew not only John Mark, but his mom. It's the first house he went to when he was freed from jail. Peter was close to that family. There would have been, obviously, a reconnection with John Mark and Peter. I think you can argue from the Gospels that the upper room that we see, not only in Acts, but at the end of the Gospels, is John Mark's house. It's the mothership, if you will, for the early church. But something happened. How do you know? Because by the time Paul writes to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he tells the believers at Colossae to welcome Mark. Paul, I thought you failed him. I thought you fired him. Something's happened. 
When Paul writes to Philemon, he refers to, listen, John Mark, as his fellow worker. But the words that really grip me are what I see Paul writing, and these are some of the last recorded words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And he says this, he says that John Mark is, quote, useful to my ministry, end quote. What in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. All indicators are pointing to the fact that Peter was in the familiar territory, not just of Jerusalem, but the gathering place with the family of John Mark. And when Mark left Paul, he went back to Jerusalem, and it was likely into Peter's, Peter's arms, his hold. See, how do you know that? Because Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, listen, is going to refer to John Mark as his son. Not physical son, but the one that he invested in spiritually. Lifelong relationships bring about rescue opportunities, don't they? Invest in rescues. Watch them fly again. Peter did. These 15 years may have been silent, but they weren't, they weren't stalled out. Number three, how do you leave your mark? Be honest with your story. Number three, be honest with your story. Now you and I know, as we hold these Bibles on our laps, that if we go to just the second book in the New Testament, it's named what? Mark. This is John Mark, who would write a gospel my goodness, was his rescue real. He would pen, under God's direction and inspiration, the gospel that bears his name. Now, many correctly refer to the gospel of Mark as the gospel according to Peter. And Peter would have been able to give Mark so much information as he wrote, as they had time together. But you've got to remember something about Peter. If he's behind Luke's or Mark's gospel, you have to remember, this is the same Peter that today would fail Facebook. In Facebook, you're supposed to write about yourself. You're supposed to picture yourself. You're supposed to create your own legacy in the minds of your 700 friends. And here's a gospel that Peter has a presence in, in its creation, if you will. But that's not what you're going to find in Mark. You're going to find in Mark all of the warts of Peter. When Mark wrote this gospel that he learned from Peter, Peter made him include not just the good stuff that would be good for Facebook. He says, don't you dare forget and leave out my failures. It's like, when Peter Lilly, or Lily, I think I'm saying the name correctly, was painting Oliver Cromwell's picture. You remember what he, Oliver Cromwell said? Lily wanted to take off his warts from the, the painting, and Oliver Cromwell said, paint my warts and all. Leave nothing out. That's what Peter said to Mark, in essence. 
He says, where, where I was called out by Jesus for being in league with Satan, put that in your gospel. And he did in Mark chapter 8. He said, Mark, when, when the transfiguration's happening in Mark chapter 9, don't leave out the fact that in verses 5 and 6, I started running my mouth again. Right in front of Moses and Elijah. Mark, make sure that's in there. And Mark, when you get to Mark 10, verse 28, don't, don't leave out the part where I said, hey, we've been faithful. What do we get, Jesus? Put that in there. Mark, when you get to Mark chapter 14, verses 29 and 31, I don't want you to leave out that I said, if all these disciples leave you, I'll never leave you, Lord. I want you to put that in there, Mark. And Mark, surely don't leave out the fact in Mark 14 that I fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Make sure that's in there. And Mark also at the end of the 14th chapter in this gospel, do not leave out the ultimate denial and disassociation I committed publicly, disavowing any knowledge and connection with Jesus. Put it in there. See, why would... Why would Peter want all that in the gospel that he had an influence on? Here's what Peter had learned, even at Antioch, that failures magnify grace. Because, Mark, I also want you to put one more thing in your gospel. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, when Jesus rose from the dead, I want you to put down what he said. Remember this? Go tell the disciples and Peter. With all my failures, my name was on his, his tongue, Peter said to Mark. Put that in there too. Failures magnify grace. It's no surprise that Mark's gospel is the most succinct of all four gospels. It's kind of like the gospel in just one paperback. <laughs> it's the shortest. But that doesn't surprise me because of the fourth and final mark, or, or final way to leave your mark that we learned from Peter in these years. And it's this. Number four is relentlessly reduce and remind. I got you a bunch of R's there. Relentlessly reduce and remind. Say, please explain that. Well, I want you to go to Peter's final epistle. The 15 years of silence have ended. First Peter's been written. Second Peter's now written. But Peter's showing his hand as he writes here at the end of his life. Something he's learned. In Second Peter 1, look at verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. You got the word remind in verse 12. You got the word reminder in verse 13. And verse 15, I want you to call, be able to call these things 
to your mind even after I'm gone. And, and, that, and that's not the end. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now this I know, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am, look at this, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What's he saying here? He's saying over and over, he's showing his hand, that I want to, re- I want to relentlessly reduce the most important truths and remind you of them all the time so that you hear my voice long after I'm gone. The glories of this gospel and the working out of this gospel and the lives of Christ's disciples, I'm going to reduce it down relentlessly and just remind you, remind you, and remind you over and over again. I mean, you have to ask a question when it comes to you, when it comes to me. What do I want Lori and Jared and Alicia and Janelle and their husbands and Jared's wife and my grandchildren? What do I want my counselees? What do I want my colleagues? What do I want my friends to be able to recall when I am no longer here? And I not only want them to recall it, I want them to continue to teach it to their children. You and I must be asking that question. That's a question that really landed hard with uh, my friend, and he's an author, you know, uh, Jim Berg. When I was in college, before he wrote Change to His Image, which was his first book, uh, second book, excuse me, he sat down with his family at dinner time, and, and they took several weeks, I think a few months, to come together as a family and, and create their own mission statement as a family. Don't you love that? A family's mission statement. And this is what his family agreed on. Listen to this. We exist as the Berg family to passionately know our God and to love and please him by living together in harmony, serving each other in humility, growing together in godliness, helping others with cheerfulness, and thereby, as a family, to provide a living advertisement of Christlikeness for others in this generation and for our children in the generations to come. End quote. I love that. They've relentlessly reduced these key doctrines and truths so that they can remind each other constantly. So how do you do that? How do you relentlessly reduce and remind? Well, first of all, you... You, you, you identify those key doctrines, which are all going to be coming out of the gospel. You put what I call pew handles on it, so anyone from 8 years old to 80 years old can understand it. And then just replay it constantly, 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 constantly. You already know what I do. You've caught me. There are certain things, probably half dozen to ten things that I repeat all the time. I find different ways to different words to use, different introductions. And I don't know how long this relationship is in this life because you and I don't know how old we are. One of us might go to heaven. Or you don't know what God's plan is. But while we're doing this, there's some things I just want to relentlessly reduce and remind you of all the time. I want you to know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, front and back. I want you to know the five stops on the journey towards forgiveness. I want you to know the five boxes of transformation. I want you to know repent, renew, replace. I want you to know the four direction disciple. Yeah, see what I'm doing here? 
I mean, i got to do new material every week, but I bring this other stuff back all the time. I want you to own it for when the day comes that we're not together. Relentlessly reduce and remind. Hmm. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, writes, The true test of a person's leadership is the health of the organization when the organizer is gone. A work inspired by God and built on spiritual principles will survive the shock of leadership change and may even prosper as a result, end quote. That's right. Relentlessly reduce and remind. And I might add, never forget the power of the handwritten word. Your script, not your text, not your keyboard, your handwriting. Because there's a generation coming behind you, there's a generation alive with you, that to get a personal note from you, written out, or to find your journal someday, your prayer journal, or, or to find your tactile copy of scripture with marks written on it. Long after we're gone, our script and our underlining and our circling is relentlessly reducing and reminding. Well, a mother took her young son shopping, and it went on all day long. And after a long day in the store, a clerk handed the little boy a piece of candy. And the mother said to the boy, well, what do you say? And the little boy replied, charge it. (laughs) What he's been hearing all day, right? You know, passing one more time over the decades of Peter's life in ministry hopefully will impress us to say what we've been hearing him say the whole study. With his life and with his mouth. Not his low points, but what happened after those. Peter would stand before you and say, yeah, I wasn't down and out in those 15 years. And what I learned in those 15 years, I would pass on to my brothers and sisters in the following generations. Never quit. Invest in rescues. Be honest with your story, warts and all, because it puts grace on display. And relentlessly reduce and remind. I don't know who wrote these words, but I love them. My life shall touch a dozen lives before this day is done. Leave countless marks for good or ill ere sets the evening sun. This is the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, may my life help others' lives. It touches by the way. And with this, we turn from Peter's life. And we turn to his pen next week. 1 Peter chapter 1. Lord, thank you for the study of a life that looks so familiar. One with such deep marks of grace and rescue that we find ourselves leaning into and saying, yes, that's me. But Lord, it's not just an issue of surviving this pilgrimage as your disciple. We want to thrive and we want to put down deep Marks, deep footprints pressed down with the gospel of grace at work in our lives. 
influences that will outlive us and continue to spread your fame, not ours. Would you do that? Would you do that in our midst with our church family? One by one. And if there's anyone under the sound of my voice online or here with me in the room right now who doesn't know the Savior yet, who can do this in the life of Peter, they've never accepted you as their Savior and their Lord They're still lost in their sins. Lord, I pray that you would give them faith right now to believe that you are God's son. You're the infinite God-man. You came and lived the perfect life, yet you died, and in your suffering, you paid for all our sin of those who will believe. And you rose from the dead, and you're offering the gift of eternal life to those who will believe the truth of you and what you've accomplished and accept your gift of eternal life and enter the freedom of living under your lordship. Would you do that in the hearts of folks right now who don't yet have life? In Jesus' name we pray.